Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast The Rest is Noise from our 2018 programme. The cultural critic Alex Ross is most widely celebrated for his 2007 book The Rest is Noise, Listening to the 20th Century, a landmark history of music since 1900. He has also published Listen to This, a collection of his writings for The New Yorker, where he has been the music critic since 1996. For the magazine, he covers classical music from the Metropolitan Opera to the downtown avant-garde, and he has also written on pop music, literature, history, and gay life. In 2008, he received a MacArthur Fellowship. Ross speaks with Fergus Barrowman in a session presented in partnership with Chamber Music New Zealand. We hope you enjoy it. As the world's preeminent or an early historian of flying nun in an expressway, <laughs> it must be great to go back to the source. Yeah, well, this is, um, uh, first of all, it's lovely to be here, and thank you all for coming. Um, yeah, I do have this, this somewhat eccentric uh, viewpoint on New Zealand because I was uh, an imaginary tourist here uh, all the way back uh, in my uh, college years when uh, at my um, college radio station there was there was there was a really devout cult of, of New Zealand music there <laughs> and uh, I was indoctrinated uh, into it um, uh, we can get into the, the vagaries of my development of my musical taste but uh, this was really some of the first popular music that I ever kind of really took seriously and took to heart, having grown up with, with uh, classical music and being very much a, a, a snobbish purist uh, uh, earlier. And um, so, yeah, these bands, I mean, the, uh, the Clean and the Verlaines and, and the Tall Dwarfs and the, the Bats and uh, um, uh, the, the whole rest of them, uh, it's, it's just, it's some of my favorite music. I mean, it remains some of my favorite music. Yes. And uh, so it's quite exciting to me. I, I actually do want, do want to get a little bit into the vagaries of the development of your musical taste mm -hmm. um, because I'm hoping that you'll now say that New Zealand was critical to that process. <laughs> That's my nationalist question. We'll get it over with. Right. Um, well, it was in a way, I mean, just to explain uh, serving water here for everybody. <laughs> um, uh, does anyone want one here? There's a third glass. <laughs> um, fight for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it sort of went like this. I mean, I... I uh, just from a very early age, I was was attracted to to classical music in, in a very uh, uh, instinctive and obsessive way. And my parents weren't musicians, but they they loved classical music and had a nice record collection and took me to concerts. But uh, they didn't really f force it on me. I just kind of uh, glommed onto it. And uh, and up until age. 17 or 18, this was just the only music that I listened to, and, and it was and it was sort of pre-20th century classical music as well, uh, or maybe I ventured as far as Sibelius, uh, kind of you know, 1920s. Uh, so when I got to college, this great uh, voyage of discovery began, and first it was going through the entire 20th century and, and, and learning decade by decade, and uh, the, the, uh, the, the explosion of, of um, stylistic uh, possibilities in the 20th century, including the, the avant-garde, the post-war avant-garde, Ligeti and, and Zanakis and Stockhausen and so on. 
Um, and then there was this crucial point where I started, I was interacting with uh, other people at the radio station because I was exploring all this through right. the medium of a, of a radio show called Music Since 1900, which is a title blatantly stolen from uh, Nicholas Slonimsky's uh, mm -hmm. brilliant kind of chronological uh, encyclopedia of, of 20th century music. Um, and and then sort of other people at the station in the in the jazz department and in the uh, the the punk rock uh, uh, area uh, started sort of giving me music to listen to that sounded like the kind of crazy noisy uh, post-war avant-garde music that I was very into. Uh, so my uh, jazz friends uh, had me listening to Cecil Taylor and Ornette Coleman and Albert Eiler and so on, uh, and the punk rock people. Um, uh, led me to Sonic Youth and Per Ubu and, and you know, sort of the, the noisier end yeah. of post-punk rock. Um, and then there, was, then there was the point at which, um, you know, I, I began to, you know, at first it was just, it was kind of um, a sort of dumbed down Theodore Dorno kind of, kind of uh, mentality where sort of only dissonant, uh, only kind of uh, uh, noisy music was permitted and everything else was crass and commercial. And you know, so if right. there was just even a little bit of melody to it or if it was sort of more widely popular, I would, I would reject it. Um, but it was, it was actually the New Zealand bands. It was some of the first really melodic and, and, and lyrical kind of more straight ahead pop music, rock music that, that I you know, allowed myself to listen to. And I just hadn't been listening to the Beatles and just all the basic stuff, you know. So this was really my entree into so, so, <laughs> mainstream pop so, music. So you it's, listen to the Beatles through Chris Knox? Absolutely. Through, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, first, you know, first Chris Knox and, and, uh, and the Clean and so on. And then I went backward to... Uh, you know, Velvet Underground and Brian Eno, and then back from them, you know, eventually to the Beatles. So it was just completely chronologically yeah, in yeah. reverse. Um, yeah. And, uh, but I don't know. I mean, I, it, you know, it was as good a way to get to know this music as, <laughs> as any, yeah. you know, and, uh, and this was not, you know, the, this is a very distinctive variation on, on the sort of mainstream uh, uh, styles. I mean, it, it yeah. was, it was, you know, so I, I don't, I don't think I was just getting a mere copy <laughs> of, of the Beatles. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite different. I mean, one of the things that struck me back then, and I still, when I listen to that music, um, the Flying Nun music above all, I hear a sweetness, and I also hear a vulner vulnerability, a kind of acknowledged weakness, which mm -hmm. I don't hear in Sonic Youth or some of the sort of more power-oriented noise bands around right. at the time. And I... I wonder if that was something that you were attracted to in the New Zealand sound, that kind of vulnerability and weakness. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, there, there, there is a kind of um, uh, uh, guardedness, kind of using that that sort of wall of sound as a as a kind of shield, uh, mm. emotional shield. And when you take that away, I mean, there is. I mean, it's interesting how my my sort of punk rock bred friends. Um, uh, you know, most of the music that they listened to was was edgier and and sort of had just more of a of a sort of harshness, whether it was you know dissonant per se or not. And and the New Zealand music was was somewhat exceptional because of the 
the sweetness because of the sort of straightforwardness mm. of its kind of melodic uh, appeal and also the yeah the vulnerability of the emotions. Um, and so I was, uh, I've always wondered, well, why why were they kind of permitted to be you know allowed into the, the their canon? And uh, I think partly just because it was so far away yeah, yeah. <laughs> that it was somehow just in this other universe, and therefore kind of you know permissible. Um, and also, I mean, the it is music that's that's more rough around the edges and yeah. it's not sort of perfectly engineered and it didn't have this this kind of world conquering ambition behind it. i mean these weren't mm. bands that were that were sort of lining up to to become the next big thing yeah. uh, you know i mean some of them you know probably did have those ambitions but there was a kind of the music was just seemed content to be itself uh and and i think uh, at that at that moment for that, uh, that our generation of people there was something very satisfying about it's it's a lack of this kind of yeah. world conquering urge. How, how was it going to build Doreen last night after all these years? I mean, could you hear continuity there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I went to see him at the uh, Audio Foundation, um, and uh, he was actually. Um, and so other friends of mine were very into him. I somehow didn't at the time. I wasn't uh, uh, listening to him so much, but. Um, it was very hard to find at the time. Yeah, those were very, very fugitive records. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's very unusual music, and it actually is is quite different from from that. What he's doing now is mm. is almost a world away from the from the you know sound of the of the nineteen eighties. Um, but uh, but it it does have that it does have that quality of of just being content in its own unusual yeah. world, this yeah. kind of music that, that is just, you know, it is what it is, and, yeah. and you come yeah. to it or you, or you don't. Yeah. Um, but uh, he's a mesmerizing uh, performer. Yeah, so absolutely. A great experience. So in, in um, Listen to This, the essay about your discovery of rock music, you, you refer to it as crossing borders. Mm -hmm. um, though that struck me slightly inaccurate, because your desire, I think, is much more to obliterate borders, to throw them down and have them not there separating musics from one another. Is that a sort of an ideal you hold? I don't know. I mean, I think each kind of music, each genre of music has, in a sense, its, its geographical center. Uh, I mean, not geographical in the sort of literal sense, but, but it means it's as, if, it's as if sort of music gathers around Urban centers, mm -hmm. um, and and its sort of its identity is 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 formed uh, at this kind of urban center. But then when you get onto the outskirts, uh, you can you can have a kind of music that that you know is could technically be part of this sort of township, you know, of jazz or whatever it is, but is also neighboring on uh, mm. another world, classical music or whatever it is. And so it can, it can sort of have, you know, yeah. uh, uh, sort of easy uh, access to that world as well. So I think that, you know, genres exist for a reason. I mean, I think it, it helps you to understand where, where different kinds of music are coming from and, and what rules does the music play by and, and, and what is the, the history of, of a genre and, and a style. So I, I don't really advocate a kind of just total chaos and kind of throwing away yeah. all these, these distinctions. But, but I am very interested in these, in these points of, so I, mean, I, I do believe in, in this idea of borders and that and you can sort of cross from one region to another. And there can be kinds of music where, where ultimately it doesn't make sense to, to classify it according to sort of yeah. you know, one world uh, or another. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, interested in this question of how you cross 
from one kind of music to to another because I want people to come into to the classical music world. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, when I, when I talk about my journey out of classical music into sort of other kinds of music, you know, I'm thinking about how people can make this genre going on the road in the yeah. other direction. And, uh, and I know lots of people who've done that, mm. you know, and as I got to know pop music history, just completely, uh, of going backward in time from you know bands of the of the 1980s people have got to know classical music by starting with steve reich or yeah. zanakis or you know whatever it is that first catches their ear and then and then maybe moving back in time yeah. to yeah. you know and, and schoenberg or, or you know sibelius yeah. and Mahler, and then eventually they get to you know beethoven but yeah. uh i think this is this is a, a very valid way to to yeah to enter. Yeah, so there's a there's a, a thing for the audience there in crossing borders and mm -hmm. following those connections. I also find that some of the most interesting music for me is in that connection. So um, some of those American jazz musicians like B.J. Iyer and Tishan mm -hmm. Sori who are mixing sort of classical discipline with an openness to improvisation. And it's fascinating when you get classical musicians who can embrace that. Um, how do you bring that kind of improvisatory openness into academic music? It's a very important question. And actually, Taishan Sori is, uh, I don't know how many people know his music here, but he's a very, very important younger American uh, composer slash performer. Um, he's, he's probably best known as a drummer, but he plays many different uh, instruments. Um, and and he's, a, he's a really fascinating composer. And and ultimately, um, to talk about, you know, does he belong to classical music or does he belong to jazz? It, it it's going to do him a disservice to to try to answer that question. I think because he's he's genuinely someone who 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 belongs can move from one world to another, um, and just doesn't even feel, you know, unlike say, Wynton Marsalis, who, who definitely started out within jazz and then sort of moved over uh, to, to sort of uh, composition. Yeah, it's, he, it's as if he's sort of grown up in, in, in both worlds at once or, or really in this sort of middle region. Um, and, and I think that's, that's something to watch for. And, and I think uh, there, there could be a, a kind of music that, that sort of is growing uh, yeah. in terms of what he's doing and what a bunch of other people are doing that, that, that almost makes these questions seem quaint right. you know about you know are yeah. you crossing yeah. from this to that and that to this yeah. you know because it's uh it it is it's it's new kind of thing and and so improvisation uh i mean he's a master of that uh and and, and of this kind of conducted um uh improvisation and this is something that that classical performers will will have to learn more and more mm -hmm. because a lot of contemporary music uh, really going back to the avant-garde uh classic avant-garde requires more input from, from the musician, more creative decisions, and, and his music requires, you know, it isn't just a matter of choosing what tempo to play sort of a given string of notes at, it's, it, it really involves invention. Well, the, those scores, um, which are charts of symbols, which yeah. require almost pure invention from the musicians, exactly. they must be very yeah. frightening to some people. It is, for, for certain academically trained people where mm. almost from birth they've been trained to, to be obedient to the mm. score and, and to sort of subject yourself yeah. to the you know, instruction yeah. of, the, of the score, it is, it is frightening. Um, but we need to, I think, change the whole conservatory system to have a, a yeah. more 
creative mentality from the very beginning. Well, that, that's something else you've written about, the way that recording, the invention of recording and the rapid spread of recording changed classical performance techniques so that mm -hmm. the kind of individuality and improvisation and swagger, I suppose, that you would get on the stage disappeared in the 20th century as musicians were trying to aspire to an ideal which their audience had all learned from right. recordings. So do you see this as actually correcting a century-long mistake and taking the music back where it should be? Yeah, to some extent, because it, what happened was that uh, recordings standardized uh, performance in all kinds of ways. Mm. It's, it, they helped to standardize uh, just the sounds of instruments, you know, because you used to have just, you know, really distinct um, uh, differences between, you know, how brass players sounded in, in various uh, countries and, and uh, sort of, you know, different European countries had different schools of, of, of woodwind playing and, and that's all been sort of homogenized to, to some extent. Um, and then in terms of just, you know, say cadenzas and, and sort of the, the, the cadenzas became standardized and, uh, you know, in uh, Una Furtiva Lagrima, uh, everyone started doing Caruso's mm -hmm. uh, uh, cadenza over and over again um, because that was what people knew on recording and they'd just be a little bit freaked out if someone started to do something different because they wanted to hear the aria and that now included, yeah. you know, it, it because Caruso was the, you know, million selling artist, uh, he just imprinted that version on everyone's consciousness. Uh, and so now, in recent decades, people are, are pushing back against that and, and trying to cultivate, uh, you know, write your own cadenza. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, if you're a bel canto singer, find your own embellishments uh, and ornaments. And actually, early music is, is so uh, uh, kind of interesting and has been interesting for so long because of the of the degree of creativity which is which is really required from yeah. performance because the scores are just quite vague and and just leave a lot more uh, to the discretion of the performer than than scores in the 19th yeah. century yeah. Uh, and and so there's this spirit of of um, sort of variation and 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 kind of uh, uh, the sort of in, in early music there's never the kind of you know one way it's mm -hmm. a particular piece is done you find just you know, wide variations from yeah. one artist to another yeah, yeah um, you mentioned Wynton Marsalis just just before so um, I need to ask you about the Pulitzer Prize oh yeah <laughs> um, which was famously not awarded to Duke Ellington mm -hmm. and it was only awarded to a jazz musician um, after jazz became classicized um, right and now it's gone to Kendrick Lamar for Dam. Um, is that in any way a bad thing, or is it a wholly good thing? Well, I mean, this, there was a lot of bewilderment um, in in the classical world and the kind of composition world about sort of how to respond to this. You know, and of course, there were just the completely reactionary people who just said, "This isn't music," and it's just a guy yelling. And we can sort of set that aside. Yeah. You know, but there, there was sort of more honest. Confusion and uncertainty how to how to respond in the new music world, and, you know, including me, uh, just because it it is a big change in the nature of of the award going forward, and um, I think you know it, it no longer made any sense if it ever made sense to begin with to limit the Pulitzer Prize for music to uh, predominantly classical composers and and some jazz artists as well in in more recent years, and that everything else was just somehow, you know, Love. that can't yeah. be sustained, you yeah. know. Uh, so the question is, well, what, what, what are the new criteria? Yeah. Um, and, 
you know, it, it was a nice way for, for, for composers who, who otherwise just get no press, no mm -hmm. media attention whatsoever, <laughs> uh, uh, to sort of have their names in the limelight for a moment. And, and I guess my fear and the fear of, you know, a certain number of people is that the pendulum is going to swing absolutely to, to in the other direction so that instead of more or less only classical composers mm -hmm. winning the prize in the future, they're never going to win. Right. Um, and that's the, that's the, the, mm -hmm. the fear that, that a lot of people have uh, that will just become an award sort of governed by, by popular music taste. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that a middle ground yeah. can be found. But then what are the criteria? criteria? How do you assemble a jury uh, to make a, a reasoned and informed decision uh, about you know what the major musical work of the year is, if it includes everything, mm -hmm. if it includes classical music, jazz, hip hop, country music, you know, uh, 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 Latin music, and just you know ev every genre. Yeah. Um, you know, I, that would be a tough jury to be on. Absolutely, um, but I think it's inevitable. Yeah. It just couldn't yeah. be. It couldn't be sustained yeah. the way it was. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know Kendrick Lamar's music that well, but but he seems like the kind of just really original and, and intelligent and and creative artist in the popular field and, and, and politically uh, uh, forceful as well, who, who should be I, I, I think the I think all of that is true. Um, but also my son, who, who knows hip-hop much better than I do, mm -hmm. educated me that um, Damn is actually a trap record, which is a classical form now within mm -hmm. the hip-hop tradition. Right. So he saw Kendrick as sort of doing something quite knowing, sort of going back and working in that genre. Oh, okay. yeah. And actually, <laughs> I was um, reading The Guardian um, in my hotel bed this morning, um, and there was a thing saying that today, May the 19th, is actually the 50th anniversary of the first public performance of The Last Poets. Hmm. So you know, if you think of hip-hop as a classical right. tradition, yeah. um, again, you've written about that, the way in which as... Uh, information speeds up and the transmission of music electronically speeds up, these genres rise and solidify and become classical quite quickly. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's happened to jazz. And there's this big debate in, in, the, in the jazz world, has been for a while, over uh, the emergence of a kind of jazz syllabus of a, a jazz canon and, mm. and repertory and, and it becoming a, a, a sort of highly codified academic practice and, and the danger that that poses to uh, the, what people see as the, the heart of the music and the, and the sort of identity of the music, which is change and flux and improvisation mm. and, and sort of uh, reinvention. Um, and uh, I think you know, in, in, in terms of the, the aging of, of rock music and, and the emergence of, of classic rock. And sort of every genre develops its uh, repertory mm -hmm. uh, in the end and, and ultimately starts having the same struggles that, that classical music mm -hmm. has been facing for generations and generations, how to find new audiences, you know, how, you know, um, you know, attendance at you know the Elvis Presley uh, uh, you know mansion is is falling off, or sort of sales are falling off. How do we get the young people you know interested in Elvis Presley? I mean, I, for for me, from my point of view, I just kind of Don't get them smile ironically else, yeah. <laughs> because this is yeah. I mean, this yeah. this is what we have been dealing with for you know hundreds of years. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and that that goes to the the problem in classical music with the scheduling of new music and in concerts, mm -hmm. um, and you know, it's often the audience who are blamed for their conservatism of mm -hmm. not going when new music is shared. But I, you know, I want to speak up for the audience here. 
because most of us who came in the opposite direction from you, we grew up with what was on the radio and then we discovered other genres and forms of music as listening adults and mm -hmm. as we sort of quested out. So much of this repertoire is actually new to the audiences mm -hmm. that are going along to hear it. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. And uh, it's just such a struggle for for classical music organizations to find the balance uh, between the new and the old. And I think so many people on the inside of these institutions would like to be doing more new music. Um, and they just they just find all kinds of barriers in the way in terms of marketing and and sort of attracting audiences and also the the musicians can be quite reluctant to learn difficult new scores when they already have just you know a pile of, of repertory to keep up with um, and it it you know I, I sympathize with with the, the the struggle I mean I'm the kind of critic who's always urging more and more yeah. uh, new music but you know I do recognize the the realities um, and and actually you you often can't really understand what a contemporary composer is doing until you realize what, what the tradition is that, mm. that he or she is, is drawing on um, so so learning the repertory is is absolutely a necessary part of the process of keeping up with the new as well absolutely um, so this I think takes us quite nicely to the rest of the rest is noise which I think is a fabulous book, um, but I want to put it to you that it's also quite a conservative book. You know, as a mm -hmm. canonical history, telling a story through a hundred years, protecting the classical tradition by opening it up at the edges to other influences coming in. Do you think that's a, a reasonable description of one of its intentions? And if not, what was its intention? Um. <laughs> I don't know if it was it was an obsession to begin with. I mean, yeah. I just I, I had I had been so absorbed in this music for so long, you know, since my university years, I had been preaching it. You know, mm. I've been on the radio. It really began with just interaction with friends, sort of urging mm. this music on friends, and then on the radio to an extremely limited, uh, you know, listening audience, um, and and then becoming a critic and starting to write about it. Uh, it, it was just. It was just always my mission to, you know, I felt I'd made such a rich, enriching uh, voyage of discovery uh, mm -hmm. in terms of discovering this music decade by decade and just sort of letting go of my, of my preconceptions and, and my uh, just blind spots um, and coming to terms with this whole expanse of music that I just you know, wanted other people to have the same uh, voyage of discovery. So that, that was this, the starting point of the book. Um, in terms of a sort of deeper ideological agenda, something that I very much wanted to do was was not to take sides so much between the the, the modernist progressive avant-garde narrative that sort of the only strand of the only line of development that really mattered was you know Schoenberg and, and Stravinsky to Varese to to Stockhausen and Boulez the the, the kind of march uh, mm -hmm. toward atonality and the march toward everything that came after that um, uh, sort of that narrative on the one hand and then the other narrative involving the more quote-unquote conservative composers who mm. tended to have a, a wider popular following yeah. uh, Shostakovich and Benjamin Britten and Copeland and uh, Sibelius. Um, I, you know, I loved all this music and I wanted to sort of yeah. mash it all together and try to find a, a narrative that would, that would encompass it all. I, I, I don't think um, you mashed it. I think you braided <laughs> it very nicely and, and kept those strands separate. I'm 
One of the revolutionary things in the book, I thought, was the space given to Sibelius, mm -hmm. the kind of restoration of that kind of expressive and emotional music. Yeah, but also, I mean, he was just a very daring and original composer. I mean, at a quite early age in the Calervo Symphony, he's he's abandoning some of the, the basic formal logic, uh, which had been uh, governing music for uh, a long time and creating this kind of open-ended uh, uh, sort of landscape music where you just, it's a kind of a, a, a musical uh, cell just starts repeating itself or sort of slowly mutating yeah. and he's, he's just throwing everything else out the window and, and it's very this very intuitive uh, approach and and so I think he's he's enormously original in that way but at the same time yes he didn't he didn't go down that route following uh, uh, Schoenberg uh, and I think regard Strauss was was very much the same he was he was very original very inventive but ultimately pulled back from the mm -hmm. brink of of atonality in that sense and and i wanted to to have all those composers be be just taken equally seriously as as the the heroes of yeah. <laughs> uh, of modernism yeah. uh, mentioning strauss um the rest is noise opens with that wonderful scene with the world premiere of Salome, mm -hmm. um, which, which was big news. It was a huge cultural event. C can you see serious music a hundred years later having the same kind of impact? Well, it's not going to happen in that in that way because at the turn of the century, these composers were enormous cultural figures. Uh, uh, Strauss and Mahler and Puccini uh, were uh, were pop cultural phenomena. You know, the the example that I like to use is Puccini uh, sailed to New York, and his boat. Uh, was caught in fog for a day or two uh, outside of New York Harbor and, and couldn't sort of make it all the way in. Um, and this was a headline in the New York Times, Puccini's boat <laughs> stuck in fog. Uh, this was just his every step, you know, was, was news. Um, so, and what makes something like Salome such a sensation is, you know, he was an already uh, celebrated composer, world famous composer who who takes mm. this quite daring step dealing with very scandalous material and, and the and the musical material of of Salome is is well on the way toward toward uh, atonality and, and actually the score had a huge influence on on Schoenberg. Uh, so there's this this sensation of of the uh, uh, you know, it's it's somewhat equivalent to what happened when when Bob Dylan, the the sort of you know yeah. famous folk music uh, uh, musician, uh, uh, takes the step toward uh, uh, electric rock or or the sort of later stages of of the Beatles, um, and so we're not we're not going to see that that kind of sensation. Mm -hmm. um, but there there are breakthroughs happening nonetheless, you know, and they're just they're not going to get the same kinds of of headlines, but I think, you know, music is evolving and and you know, there are events which are sort of quietly, more mm -hmm. quietly shocking yeah. in, in, in their own way. Or not maybe we're not even looking for this, you know, measuring stick of of shock and scandal and, and total surprise. Maybe that's a kind of twentieth century early 20th century model that that's no longer that, applies. That, that moves to a, perhaps a, a healthier relationship with music because along with that kind of shock and scandal goes um, the Nazi use of Wagner um, to typify a regime and to sort of headline politics and the 
know, the use of big music, and you mm -hmm. can see it, you've written about Gurdjieff and his sort of becoming a willing tool of Putin in some ways. So perhaps we're moving away from that imagined national role of music. Yeah, I think, I mean, this was this is the downside of when, when, we, when we make creative figures, musical figures, artistic figures into uh, uh, sort of uh, cult leaders almost, mm -hmm. uh, sort of demigods, mm -hmm. um, and, and give them this, this outsized role in society and culture and politics. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when a composer becomes a symbol of an entire nation, as happened with Wagner, as happened with Sibelius mm -hmm. in Finland, uh, uh, in various other countries, it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous situation for the artist. Uh, because uh, that can be quite constricting uh, mm -hmm. to just one sense of, of free play and, and inner growth if, if you, know, you feel you're already becoming a statue, <laughs> yeah. a living statue at age 50 or even uh, earlier. And then, then when the sort of music is, is assigned an explicit uh, political role, uh, then, then composers can find themselves figureheads of regimes uh, to which they, they may not have real sympathies. And it happened with Shostakovich. Uh, it happened with Strauss to, to some extent. I mean, people debate whether he really had any deep political mm -hmm. convictions or even moral convictions. But I think it's fairly well established that he did, he did oppose a lot of the fundamental ideas of the mm. of the Nazi regime, yeah. but he just wasn't willing to to really stand yeah. up uh, against them. Although he did do so privately sometimes, um, and uh, you know even Sibelius, Sibelius mm. uh, found himself aligned mm. with Nazi Germany um, yeah. uh, when 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 uh, Finland made its uh, 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 kind of you know Th understanding right. yeah. with yeah. Uh, with Germany, and um, and then you know Wagner is the ultimate example, and this this was a, a posthumous. Case, you know, uh, uh, you know, Wagner died before Hitler was born. Uh, he was a 19th-century man, and and I, it's it's very tricky to to draw these, you know, direct yeah. political lines of of descent. Um, but but it did certainly happen that that Wagner was successfully appropriated uh, mm -hmm. to the purposes of the Nazi regime, and uh, and uh, I said this yesterday in my lecture on on Wagner, Thomas Mann had this brilliant phrase where he said uh, Wagner lent himself to such yeah. treatment, which is yeah. not the same thing as he was yeah. a Nazi and, and that, that he you know, mm. uh, uh, was perfectly yeah. aligned with the Nazi regime. But there's something about his work which made it all too easy yeah. to accomplish that appropriation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but let's and, not, we and, won't get and, into and the Wagner I, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> whirlpool. <laughs> but but Sibelius, um, as I was saying the other day, was also appropriated by New Zealand, as Peter mm -hmm. Walls has written, um, for the tourist film, um, right. This is New Zealand. So in a sense, we want not the, the grandeur of, of national music, right. we just want to bring people here and to celebrate the national landscape. So you know, I, I want to save that kind of expressive national music, but resist the kind of use of music to make proud statements. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was, I mean, there was quite a bit of Sibelius in, in uh, Douglas Lilburn's early symphonic pieces as well, I think. Um, Very much, yeah. And, and so, yeah, something about, um, you know, great geographical <coughs> expanses and, yeah. and, and yeah. mountains and, and uh, uh, it's, you know, it's something yeah. 
there is something that that you know the music fits uh, the, that that kind of uh, landscape. Um, uh, but I mean, when I think about nationalism uh, and music, is that you know up to a point, it's absolutely necessary for for uh, uh, the musical community of a particular mm -hmm. nation, uh, musicians, critics, mm -hmm. administrators, and audiences to care about and prioritize that nation's composers mm -hmm. because no one else is going to care. Uh, and this is just the, the, the reality. It's a community uh, just, thing. Yeah, yeah you yeah. just can't expect uh, people in Latvia to be paying mm -hmm. close attention <laughs> to what New Zealand composers are doing. Uh, it's it just every, every country has just, you don't even need to think about it necessarily on a on a national level. You, know, you can think about it in terms of of cities as well or, or regions, mm. but but it's just the responsibility mm. of of those regions to to cultivate uh, composers and encourage them and just pay attention to what they're doing. You know, yeah. because we just can't have this perfect yeah. cosmopolitan world where where we just care about it. You know, no, no, you, and we're not even capable of, of uh, you know, there's so many composers just right here in New Zealand who are worth paying attention to. Uh, there's just no way, you know, you can keep track of, of just music all over the, the globe. You know, I, I sometimes just try just with my computer exploring, uh, you know, the, the, uh, not to keep harping on Latvia for whatever reason, but you know the the Latvian, the Latvian music information center. Yeah. You know we'll have a, a website mm -hmm. and and music samples, and there's you know you know mm -hmm. here are 55 composers under the age of 40, and you know you start listening, and just quickly just the mind explodes because it's just there's but, just but, too much happening. But, but that's where you come in, Alex, um, <laughs> because um, on your blog, the rest is noise. Um, those diverse reading listening lists that you mm -hmm. post from time to time. I mean, I need you to go to the Latvian music site and pick the <laughs> you know the one or two of those forty I should listen to. I try. Yeah. I mean, but for yes. me, it's just it's happenstance. Yeah. You know, this is not a a the result of a of a systematic and absolutely thoroughgoing exploration of 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 all the music that exists. God you know, that you can it's, try. it's very yeah. much just kind of yeah. something. Yeah. I just happen to yeah. click on something yeah. and something catches my ear. I hear a piece in concert. You know, but collectively, I think um, uh, this is what music critics do. Uh, this is what just people who have blogs who sort of re have recommendations. Um, it's what musicians do by, by programming certain composers who, who interest them. It's just, uh, it, we're, we're all acting as, as filters in, in a sense, Absolutely. instead of giving people a set of possibilities yeah. to, to explore. Yeah. But I definitely resist the idea that like, that I'm, you know, these are the five composers who matter, you know, because yeah. that's just, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm not capable of making yeah. that kind I, of I suppose I'm, I'm trying to put up against that, that metaphor of the city mm -hmm. um, spreading out, the, the right. kind of sense of the world as an onion mm -hmm. with those many fine thin skins so that what, what happens now is that the Latvian composer or the New Zealand composer can be discovered globally by like-minded people. Yeah. Um, you know, I saw it in my work with Hera Lindsay Bird's Book of Poetry, which within days of being published, we were shipping international orders before, you know, the regular reviews had come in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that dispersal happens, doesn't it? Yeah, no, and this is, and it's really the internet, uh, and the internet for all of its uh, dubious <laughs> dimensions uh, has done something extraordinary for the global awareness of music as well as for poetry and so many yeah. other, and the ability just to, to go on that kind of site and, and uh, you know, just uh, begin to explore 
the music of of a very far away place. You know, and you know when I when I was exploring New Zealand music, uh, you know, I was working from from such limited resources, but I just happened to be you know part of this community of mm. people who were very plugged into what yeah. the New Zealand bands were doing, mm. and so they mm. had a you know, small library. Uh, but you know, beyond that, it was it was incredibly difficult to get yeah. sort of more you know information, and, and these the bands themselves mm. often remained quite mysterious because yeah. you just had the record and you had some sort of blurry pictures yeah. and, and texts, and you know, who knows like who these people actually were, and so these rumors, kind of urban uh -huh. legends, would get passed around, and you know, who these people were, um, and so now it's just so uh, instantaneous, and uh, and I think. Um, it, it can, but the, the, but it can be so difficult to break through the the sheer noise of 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 yeah. what of what everyone is doing. But yes, the possibility exists. Yes. And that that experience of receiving the music with difficulty reminds me of the way it was made. It seems to me often out of boredom and poverty of um, means. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and just the urge to yeah. to sort of keep yourself yeah. entertained yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, and the lack of anything else. I, I want to go back to Shostakovich, who's a fantastic case study for that sense of a musician in a very difficult social and political mm -hmm. situation. And I, my favourite quotation of his, which I wrote down so I get it right, <laughs> just goes: "The timbral riches that are at the disposal of the contemporary symphony orchestra are inaccessible." to the small chamber, ense chamber ensemble. Thus, to write a chamber work is much harder than to write an orchestral one. So I want to put that to you um, in support of my idea that um, small is usually better than big now. And um, sometimes the, the, the works that ga gain the most attention, that seem to want to gain attention, require a lot of money and a lot of public support to get up and they have choirs and orchestras and dance beats. Mm -hmm. And yet the really fascinating things are the ones that musicians do in self-selected ensembles with very small means. Does that seem accurate to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think so much of what's going on uh, in contemporary music now that, that really seems uh, original and uh, individual does come from from smaller ensembles. It's it's much more rare to find uh, a contemporary opera for you know a full complement of, of of singers and orchestras being you know staged at a large house uh, to to find a, a really original voice. I mean there 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 is Thomas Addis, there there is Kaya Sariaho, uh, and, and and John Adams, but but in America we have. We have a lot of operas that, that are so composed for those forces that, that feel like a, a kind of pastiche of, of, of ideas that, that already exist. And, and the same thing with a lot of the orchestra repertory. Um, and, and so just the action is with the, uh, the, the smaller ensembles in so many ways, just because, um, you know, it, it, you said self-selecting and these musicians will be, will be prepared, they'll be eager uh, for whatever unusual ideas yeah. you throw at them. With a sort of a 100-piece orchestra, there's going to be resistance um, if you ask everyone to execute multiphonics or whatever it is. Um, and, and so it's just that there's a built-in advantage. And mm -hmm. just a lot of composers are, are ignoring orchestras mm -hmm. altogether. They just, they, you know, they're sort of in the midpoint of, the, of a very successful career and they haven't actually written yeah. you know, a full orchestral piece and they're not suffering for it. Um, and of course, there's a history of this going back to the early 20th century, and I think the, the program 
the stroma is doing that I'm introducing, it's it's all about that that repertory of the of the small uh, stripped down uh, mobile flexible uh, ensemble, uh, a couple of strings, a couple of winds, yeah. piano, sometimes percussion, uh, and it's the Pierrot ensemble, it's Stravinsky's Histoire de Soldat ensemble, and so that's the that's the kind of original and, and, model. And Stroma is a different ensemble every time I yeah. hear them. I mean, last time it was mechanical ballet with player <laughs> pianos and right. you know, programmed drum kits yeah. and two valiant pianists um, trying to suppress themselves in order to fit into the music. Right. Wonderful stuff. Yeah, but this is, I mean, this is the history of, you know, just again and again in the 20th century, uh, you find important breakthroughs happening with these with these sort of ad hoc uh, ensembles that, that are sort of ready to go and ready to yeah. sort of uh, uh, project a composer's mm -hmm. ideas, uh, seize upon it, and, and execute it. The same thing happens with you know Steve Reich's ensemble yeah. and Philip Glass. You know, yeah. this, this do-it-yourself uh, yeah. mentality. Yeah. yeah, and just talking briefly about the program that you're introducing tomorrow. Um, it, it opens with a bit of Piero Lunaire by Schoenberg, and mm -hmm. then there's Chanson Médicasse by Ravel, mm -hmm. and it's strikes me that they're both revolutionary works. And yet to most listeners now, um, Piero Lunaire still sounds alien and difficult and forbidding, whereas the Ravel um, is approachable. It's something we can, um, we're sort of familiar with its idiom. So why do you think that happened in history? Well, people see the name Schoenberg and, and they get nervous. Um, <laughs> and and I think that, and it's fascinating, you know, I've seen audiences uh, walk out of Schoenberg performances or just, you know, not even mm. show up to begin with, sort of their yeah. empty seats because they've just decided, you know. Um, but then you play something by, by Sarajevo, say, uh, which is, a, a, you know, a work in a, in a kind of line of descent going back to Schoenberg, but, but has gone sort of many stages beyond that in terms of the, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a more contemporary and avant-garde yeah. vocabulary. People have, will find that easier yeah. than, than, than Schoenberg. There's something about him that, that people rebel against. And I think it has to do with the fact that he did come from this romantic mm -hmm. uh, tradition and, and he, he proved his mastery of that tradition with his early works with Verklatenacht and Gurleader, and then he made this turn, mm -hmm. and people resent him, I think, after all these years uh, for, for having abandoned uh, uh, romanticism, and, uh, and so they, 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 they see him as kind of the, the, the original troublemaker <laughs> in 20th century music history. But you know, when you put Chanson Madigas next to Pierre Rollin, it is to a great extent the same language, and, and Ravel was influenced mm -hmm. by Piero Lunaire, both mm. in that piece and in his uh, Mallarmé songs, mm. uh, you can just you can just hear it very clearly. Um, and just when you get down to the kind of DNA level, this music it's it's almost the same language in the end. And you know, there's a lot of tonality, in is still residual mm. in Schoenberg, mm. and there's a lot of chromaticism and and mm. uh, uh, kind of uh, bitonality and so on in mm. in Ravel, and they're just not that far and, apart. And yet the emotional effect the music is quite different. The temperature is different somewhere. Well, it'll be interesting to see how people yeah. feel hearing, okay. you know, tomorrow hearing those pieces side by side because for me this, I mean, I think the, the, the texts have this kind of, you know, this, this sort of exotic, moonlit, mm. vaguely symbolist yeah. kind yeah. of, you know, world mm. and, mm. and uh, uh, these kind mm. of fleeting yeah. emotions and, and, the, and, the, and the music has this kind of uh, esoteric, yeah. 
sensual uh, mm. quality. And so to put them side by side is actually a nice stroke. It wasn't my idea. It was the, <laughs> uh, to, to, to find this, this common yeah. ground because people do still yeah. see them as far apart. Yeah. I'm going to open for questions in a moment. So think of your questions. But I, I want to just talk about writing about music because you're writing and you, I mean, you speak so beautifully about it just now and when you were talking about chord structures and Wagner yesterday um, and the sort of physicality of those things. Um, is it difficult knowing that you're writing for very well-educated and obsessive audiences and an untrained audience who's going to respond impressionistically? Right. That's the challenge uh, I felt from the beginning because I want to keep both of those groups interested um, and sort of both the the specialist who, who knows more about Mozart than I do, uh, and the listener who has sort of barely kind of heard, you know, Eine kleine Nachtmusik or something, um, and and to, to sort of say something that is of interest to, to both. And so there's a kind of a zigzagging quality. I don't do this too consciously or deliberately, but just for my own purposes, I, I like to, to anchor the writing in something concrete and, and that means a moment of technical description and just you know naming the chord um, it just it just grounds the discussion for me uh, in the same way that if you're describing uh, a painting you know in in prose it helps to say you know there's the color red on one side and yellow on the other you know uh, just to, to name yeah. uh, the the materials mm -hmm. and and with music that does require you know a little bit of the of the of the technical vocabulary, but I always feel I can get away with it if I don't sort of, if it's relatively limited. And, and so if people feel unsure about the uh, vocabulary, it's like sort of skating across yeah. some thin ice, yeah. <laughs> getting over yeah. to the other side without plunging into the icy cold waters of, you know, yeah. triads and half diminished <laughs> sevenths and so on. Right. Uh, so, and then, and then I, you know, what I often do is I, I use a technical term and then I immediately have a kind of metaphorical paraphrase. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so if I use, if I talk about trombone glissandos, I, yeah. I say, you know, a sneering trombone. Exactly. You know, kind yeah. of you, you pair the technical word with the, the impressionistic. The impressionistic word. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, do you think your writing was strongly shaped by developing as a journalist rather than coming from academia? Do you think that was a great value to you? It was. I mean, I, strangely enough, I wasn't interested in journalism until I started doing it for a living. Um, because, I, you know, when I was in high school, when I was in university, I didn't do the school paper or anything like that. I did do the radio station. And, and that actually was a form of journalism because I was talking theoretically to a, a wide yeah, audience, yeah. even if it was ultimately yeah, only three yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and explaining mm. things and then sort of offering thoughts. Um, and uh, and I started writing reviews, sort of little um, CD reviews that we published with our mm. program guide. But with journalism, I actually really had to make it up as I as, mm. as I went along and and found it a struggle because initially, actually, I wanted to be a lot more technical, mm. um, and and I found it bothersome to have to explain things. Yeah. And then I began to discover the the pleasure of of finding. The paraphrase, the kind of tidy explanation yeah. that it has, it is a little bit elegant, and and it's and it's not sort of merely a kind of dictionary definition. And so, uh, so I started taking pleasure. In yeah. That. <clears throat> uh, and and I'm going to look for hands. So please wave. Oh, we've got one right here. Mm -hmm. um, is there a microphone coming? Oh, okay. Oh, the microphone is a fixed microphone at the back. Thank you. Actually, just, just while they go to the microphone, can you, can you 
say, um, I mean, the New Yorker must have been must be a heavenly home for you for 20 years now. It is. Yeah. yeah. What's what's it like? I'm incredibly lucky to be there. Um, it is an atmosphere where where the the writers' interests and the writers' passions really count and and really drive the content of the magazine. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have marvelous editors mm -hmm. and they have uh, uh, very good ideas about pieces. But ultimately, if at the New Yorker you just really feel you have to write mm -hmm. a particular uh, article, you mm -hmm. you get to do it. it yeah. can, sometimes it takes months or even years to, to make the case. Mm -hmm. to yeah. sort of, you know, I mean, the, uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a, a long article about Death Valley uh, in California, and this is something I wanted to do for years and years. It wasn't so much that they rejected the the idea, but it was just I never, I just had this. I want to write something about Death Valley. I just never had a yeah. kind of you know focus for it. And my editor eventually said, you know, there's this huge rainfall in Death Valley and, and this this enormous uh, 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 bloom of of uh, of um, flowers uh, in an ordinarily barren terrain, and 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 he realized this could be the sort of jumping yeah. off point. Um, but this is this that's the wonderful thing about the magazine yeah. is you get ultimately to to sort of <clears throat> you're not told what to do. Fantastic. Um, a question um, back back here. I've got a question, um, Alex. I'm the I'm the non-Aryan member of the New Zealand Wagner Society. Mm -hmm. So my question is, do you have any general comments about modern attention spans and whether they can, whether they shape the composition and reception of music? The, the background to this is that I listen to both Indian classical and Western classical music, where the symphonic development in both lasts from 1,000 to 10,000 bars. If you compare that to modern audiences who, say, read uh, Harry Potter, um, Tolkien or Elena Ferrante, these same people, when it comes to music, basically have the attention span of a semi-senile hamster. <laughs> you know, 5 to 10, 15 bars, and not much more than that. So that's quite difficult for the contemporary art composer if you have a person who can bas is basically not trained to listen to more than four to five sequential modulations. <laughs> um, is that fair? <laughs> No, that, that's actually, I like the way you frame that because, um, you, you know, because the way you said, you know, people do have the attention span for, uh, for a very long book, for, you know, like a three and a half hour long superhero movie or whatever it is. You know, it's, it's not that sort of biologically uh, the species has devolved to the point where, where people can't uh, pay attention uh, for that long. It's just when, when it comes to music. Yes, there, there, there is. Uh, I think uh, because of the of the str song structure mm -hmm. of of pop music, um, uh, people expect uh, a sort of musical uh, musical narrative to take place really within a few minutes, um, and they get nervous. Uh, they just they're not trained, uh, as you said, uh, to deal with with a much uh, longer narrative. They can do it, but they just you know need to and, and develop a kind of. And yet, the shot, the song structure of pop music is also the song structure of Schubert. Yeah, of you know, course. Th that's, yeah. That was there long before mechanical reproduction. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just that it, you know in. In classical music, you know, there are these, the, you know, the, the song structure has existed alongside sort of, you know, these, these much uh, uh, broader uh, structures and in, in various, you know, world music 
traditions, uh, you have uh, improvisations that, that go on for, for uh, an enormously long time in some cases, and, and people become uh, swept up in that, and, and those who are steeped in those traditions can, can just immerse themselves completely and hear the, the variations and, and, and development. Um, and I think, yeah, in, in the sort of the Western tradition, uh, uh, in the kind of culture that, that's been uh, sort of governed by, by pop music in, in particular, um, people are too, too confined by that, by that, that yeah. short structure. And, and, and they just, they need, they need skills to be able to yeah. sort of follow and, and, a longer. And yet in music as in books, um, there is a craving for long forms. And mm -hmm. you can see it in Max Richter's success. You can see it in trance and drone music. And I think people do when they find them. If they're if they're willing to go there, they particularly love those things that actually break them out of that fractured concentration exactly, yeah. span and Einstein extend, the extend beach. So yeah, time. People yeah. just find themselves sitting yeah. for hours. Sorry, question here. As part of the senile hamster generation, coming <laughs> in at twenty-three years of age, um, that that really rose. It kind of reshaped my question because I'm I'm interested in accessibility and and the pervading elitism which if one looks around this room I don't mean to make any judgments but everyone is about twice my age white and probably middle class I, I fit those two last boxes too but I given the history of what we sort of call classical music and how it actually used to be appreciated by much more diverse audiences how do you as a as a, as a journalist and critic think we can refresh make 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 that happen again because as as somebody who sort of tries to move in activist circles the minute you sort of say that you enjoy classical music you're 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 siding with the elite and right. you know yeah. i don't know whether i didn't frame that very well but perhaps perhaps yeah. you got the gist <laughs> well, I mean, I, I tend to rebel against this automatic, I feel like it's sort of unthinking association between classical music and the elite, because, you know, in the pop music area, you have just gigantically wealthy people uh, sort of putting out um, cultural product with the aid of, of you know, huge transnational uh, corporations and then, you know, performing in stadiums where, you know, the, the tickets, you know, certain seats sell for a thousand dollars, you know, and, and this is, so this is this sort of massive uh, uh, apparatus which has its, you know, uh, 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 a very kind of exalted elite and, and sort of this sort of built-in inequality and and, um, and yet it all managed to sort of pass itself off as, you know, we're for the common people and the, you know, the Silicon Alley uh, billionaires show up in their thousand dollar seats wearing jeans, you know, yeah. so it's, you know, they, it's, they get a pass. Um, so I, you know, I, I reject that. And yet I see the history and I see the perpetuation of the image, and, and there is a lot of conservatism in classical institutions. I'm not sure I agree that the classical music audiences are less diverse than they used to be, maybe in economic terms, when tickets were cheaper. I'm not, right. you know, in terms of ethnic diversity, I think we have actually, you know, the global audience for, for classical music uh, is, 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 is more diverse than, sure. than it was in, you know, the year 1800. Um, uh, and so we're actually part of the way there. Um, but uh, I think there needs to be much stronger effort to diversify, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, who's playing in orchestras, who's singing in operas on stage, who's, who's getting played, 
what composers from the past are we are we choosing to to represent? There are female composers, there are African American composers and composers of color that we can find in history that we can you know place on programs without abandoning quality and so on. And and, and we're beginning to make some progress there, but much more needs to be done. Thank, Thank you. you. We're technically out of time, but there are two people standing, so here first, we'll just take two quick questions. Can I, can I in come in first? Because mine are thank yous, and I just want to make sure that Alex hears them. Thank you very much to the Rice Festival for taking a music critic, and one of the best ones in the world, so seriously that he was brought out for this occasion in a country where we are getting rid of our uh, uh, newspaper herald, uh, uh, newspaper music critics as fast as possible. So I, I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, the secondly, uh, in advance, thank you, Alex, tomorrow for taking part in a concert that performs two works of New Zealand composers, Jenny McLeod and Gillian Whitehead. And I hope that perhaps you'll get the chance to meet them, to meet two of our greatest living composers who both happen to be female. Yes, I, ha I met Julian Whitehead. Uh, and, and sir, do you want to quickly answer, ask your question? I met her today, actually, and I yeah. would love to meet Jenny McLeod. In your, well. in your first book, there's a delightful vignette of Stefan Wolf and Morton Feldman in the Greenwich Village. Mm -hmm. And Stefan Wolf is exclaiming something along the lines of, music must be written for the man in the street. Well, never mind that, of all people, Jackson Pollock was walking by. <laughs> but that makes me reflect on Arnold Schoenberg's comment, which you reference, where he says that art is from the outset naturally not for the people. I'd be interested to know what your interpretation of that sentence is and what your reaction is to it. Yeah, well, what he, what he said and it's somewhat notorious, was that um, uh, if it is art, it is not for all, and if it is for all, it is not art. Um, and uh, this sounds like the, the, the very essence of elitism and, and uh, snobbery. Um, and I find it a, a problematic. It's a problematic uh, utterance. Um, I, I once proposed a revision of it. <clears throat> I said, if it is art, it is not for all. And if it is for all, it does not exist. <laughs> there is nothing which is for all. Uh, Beyonce, whatever the most famous uh, figure you can think of, uh, you go walking through the streets of, of New Delhi or, or Bangkok or somewhere, and you'll find a whole lot of people who, who, who couldn't care less. Um, and and this, this music is, is uh, 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 you know, all, all art. Uh, is an acquired taste. Um, so that would be my kind of <laughs> revised yeah. version of, of Sherbert. Excellent. Okay. Well. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.